We were children of the Silicon Revolution, an X-generation conscripted to fight the console and home computer wars. A product of an analog 70s childhood, we came of digital age in the 80s, believing we could affect the world eight bits at a time. Armed with joysticks, full-stroke keyboards, jolt cola, and MTV haircuts, we proceeded into the vertical blank. There, we stayed up late at night, devising incantations from D&D rulebooks and beginner all-purpose symbolic instruction code. Video games were the match and programming was the fuse as the infinite possibilities of the digital world exploded into the internet age to come. We are Generation Atari. Hi, this is 8-Bit Jeff here. Welcome to Season 3, Episode 3 of Into the Vertical Blank, Generation Atari. In this episode, Steve and I finish up our discussion with Dan Kitchen and focus on what we are calling Pro Brew. Professional game developers from the 80s creating new titles for the systems they originally created commercial titles for in the 80s. But Pro Brew has another meaning when it relates to the Kitchen Brothers, as they made some excellent homebrew game development tools in the 80s and use them to create actual professional titles. Now get ready for the second part of our discussion with the legend, Dan Kitchen. Um, the 7800, you, you worked on the 7800, so was that also at Activision or, it did, or did you move on to, was that Absolute? Well, no, that, that was also at Activision where I did uh, the 7800 version of Tomcat and Kung Fu Master. Um, Absolute came in 1986. You know, Activision had gone through some serious financial changes. Had tried to focus on PCs and 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 the rising computers there, and uh, they were shutting offices. They weren't doing very well, and they had proposed to us, "Look, we really can't afford you guys in the East Coast. Um, so why don't you know if you decide to work as contractors?" We'll continue to work with you, but we can't really support the infrastructure. So Gary, myself, and a few other guys decided to close the Activision office and reopen at the same address uh, as a company called Imagineering. And we had created a development services company where we were going to make games for other people. Uh, and we did. Made a lot of games for Game Tech and THQ and a bunch of other clients um, did some very fun games. To, uh, did the Simpsons games with uh, with Matt Groening for Greg Fishback. The NES, the NES versions, right? NES versions of I think four of them, and one Game Boy, two Game Boy ones for the Simpsons, and then Ren and Stimpy's, and and then we started publishing our own games, of which Gary's Battle Tank was the first, um, and we actually used Activision as our distributor. Because we, you know, we didn't really have any ties into the retail retailers at the time, and uh, we ended up beginning to write more games for ourselves and publish them than games that were being done as services for the clients. And we published our first game, which was X15 Alpha Mission. That was the first one for the Commodore 64, written by John Van Risen. 
It was in a plastic case, uh, which we shrunk, shrunk wrap, and we did it in Gary's living room. I think we had our whole family over, and we made an <laughs> assembly line where we shrunk wrap a thousand units and shipped it out to a distributor. That was our first game, and then Battle Tank came. That's amazing. And, uh, and that was under our Absolute label, and so eventually we changed the company to Absolute Entertainment simply because we did so much more self-publishing. That's cool. And I have a, couple, a question about that, but I want to ask you something first. Gary Kitchen's Game Maker. Um, Phenomenal. So were you guys influenced on this by like Pinball Construction Set, uh, so, something like that? Or what? where did this come from? And how come it, I haven't heard more about it? Like, well, maybe because there was no Atari 8-bit version, but, but this seems like a, a pretty landmark piece of software. Oh, when they show um, Pitfall as the type of game you could make. Yeah. I wrote that in two weeks using nice. Gary's Game Maker. That's amazing. Um, Wow. Gary's Game Maker was far ahead of its time. Um, it's funny you say pinball construction set. I just found a couple of days ago my actual package and disc for the original Bill Budge Ooh, yes. construction kit. I think it's Budgeco construction kit. Oh, wow. Um, it's the, it's one of the ones I think Bill had worked on when he was in his parents' bedroom. This is yeah, Apple, in his bedroom, for, living for in his parents' Apple house. the Apple II. This is before yeah. electronic This cars. is the Apple II. Oh, before yeah. EA. Um, but Gary, you know, Gary is incredibly creative and inc- incredible engineer. And we were sitting around and he wanted to find a way to, to have the people who are not programmers make their own games. And so Gary started with a handful of instructions and started this this code base on, on Commodore. And we'd sit around every day and say, hey, why don't you have him do this? Hey, let's, you know, uh, give him a set of flags and have more, or have it some, some way to Let's have some way to edit the sprites they use. So I went off and wrote a text, a, a sprite editor, and somebody went off and wrote a sound editor. And he he created this tool that was the unity of its time. And it was yeah. so powerful that we would create custom instructions for us to use. And it was so powerful that where, when it was near completion, we had to make demos. And so I made, I think, 90% of the demos on the on the disc. And I was just amazed at how fast I could program games with it. <laughs> That's awesome. And we realized after it had shipped the power of it, and we actually took the tool and made games for the Commodore 64 that we released at Absolute Entertainment that no one knew were made with Gary Kitchen's Game Maker. Oh, man, that's amazing. And so, the, so the Commodore 64 crossbow, I had done the Atari 2600 version. And then we secured the rights um, from from uh, uh, Exidy, it may have been, who had the original oh, rights. Yeah. And we said, you know, we got an opportunity. Let's get the game done quick. Let's see if we can use Game Maker. And like four or five of us in the office split up the screens. And we wrote that sucker in about a month. <laughs> wow. And I mean, I could sit down and in two weeks I could write. Sometimes in two or three days I could write an Atari, an Atari game uh, because it was so powerful. Um, and so unfortunately, you know, it was released on the Commodore 64. I did the Apple port of it. Uh, I did the Apple, uh, I actually did the Apple crossbow version of it for absolute uh, that we released as an Apple game. Um, and it wasn't pursued very much by Activision. And to this day, I think Gary was, was very disappointed that he didn't pick up the mark and still, still carry the, uh, still carry the, uh, the product forward. At one point, um, I actually re- I joined the guys at Skyworks 
um, in the last number of years they were in business. And Gary and Dave were working on another version of that. Oh, man. That would have been something. But at that point, Unity was out and some other tools were out. And so it didn't really make sense. Yeah, imagine if you if that had kept going. It could have just it, been yes, the It tool. could have been a staple. It would okay. have been a staple. Gary Kitchen's game maker for the Amiga or the Atari ST game for the Agreed. Apple II. Agreed. Apple II GS for the PC. I know the click and play guys made yep. stuff like that, right? And they made their they own. They did. They did. They did. And they started out really early too. So they did. And, and and we did that for for the Apple II. I don't know if it sold well. We did. We put Game Maker out on the on the Apple II at one point. Dan, I, I got see, a question about that though. I see it right here, and I see you have a the background editor is your image. Yes, it's really cool. Yep. So, Dan, you're a professional game designer, programmer, you know, developer. Um, and and I think we ran into a little bit of this after we wrote because we wrote a couple books about game programming as well. You with with Game Maker, you're sort of democratizing game development. In mm-hmm. a way, did you ever feel like with tools like that, you may be putting yourself out of business? Um, not necessarily, because you uh, you know this. If I had a dollar for every time somebody came up to me and said, "I have an idea for a game." <laughs> And the first thing you do is you look at them and say, okay, what does the screen look like? And you kind of stump them. And then if you can help them define that, you say, okay, how do the mechanics work? What does the joystick do when you, you know, when you do this or do that? And as much as us creating that tool, I think there's still, there's still a, there was still an underlying philosophy of game design that not everybody knew. Certainly not when Game Maker came out. And it's amazing that that is now being taught in universities around the country. Uh, the the skills of, of game design. Oh right, yeah. yeah that's. That, I think that's, I thought about that a lot. I think the answer is it it doesn't put you out of business because it's very easy to start a game, but it's very difficult to very finish. hard to finish it. Yeah. Yes, very good. Yes, indeed. Yes, so, I'm sorry, I think I've started a thousand games and I finished four. <laughs> right, I finished four or five. I mean, there's just not. <laughs> Oh, look, the last 10% is the hardest. You're right. I mean, actually, like, I made a level. All right. And you're like, make 10 more. Ah, tomorrow. Right? Make 10 more and do a front end and do a back end. Right, right. Exactly. A, yeah, it's just, yeah. It's, and play so, the game endlessly for eight months and don't get sick of it. So you've, you've developed for nearly every platform. I mean, there's stuff, you know, uh, going, going back for, you know, for the, almost every platform that ever existed. In the 360 and the Xbox, yeah. too. So almost, almost for the GE toaster oven, but I, I didn't, I, I didn't get that opportunity. <laughs> what? Which, which platform? If you could make a game, would you, would you go back and make right now, or did you have you answered that with the 2600? You know, the 2600 is my favorite platform only because of the challenges. Right. Um, it's fun to have so many limitations and have to work around them to make something look neat. Back when we were making 2,600 games, we didn't just make them for the consumer or ourselves. We would do the games for other designers. To show off, right? Like- it was the coolest thing when, yeah, my friend Ed Salvo at Games from, from Apollo would come up to me at CES, point to my screen and say, how did you do that? <laughs> and then number two, what does, uh, what does zero page address 2A and 2B do? <laughs> and I would look at him and say, Ed, you know I can't tell you that. Sorry, it was cool to keep it was cool to do that so that the guys on the west coast would look at your game and say that's impressive 
you know, and uh, that that was something we we got a real kick out of. So, was there an East Coast um, office for Activision, or is that you guys? Was the, were the East Coast? No, we were the East Coast. We we were their first satellite office when they hired us. They opened us as the Activision Eastern Design Center. And was there any sort of uh, rivalry between you guys? None per se. Uh, not not really. No, and we we got along really well we became very fast friends with dave okay um and then with bob and al um it's funny we used to there used to be we used to get fan mail like they did and then kids used to call our office claiming to be them (laughs) and then kids would call their office asking for them claiming to be us uh to the point where i think dave was the one who created some some code words that we would use to make sure that we were actually speaking on the other end of the phone. So they wouldn't find out details and things like that. Yes, they would. What's your next game, Mr. Crane? Oh, that's no, crazy. This is if, this, if it's Dan, I'm sure you know what it is. So. This is Dan Kitchen. Um, we'll go back to the, the platforms for a second. Just So, you know, when, when you're sitting there with Unity in a blank screen, right? you can make any game you wanted to with given enough time and resources, you can make anything available on any platform. Is it better to have the limited resources so you have these constraints that give you a, a well, something to shoot for? I feel I'm a really good artist when it comes to the Atari 2600. I mean, I, I, I create, except for a couple of games, Gary Gary fixed my Potsy guy. I, he, mine wasn't very good. And I wrote a, a tool that was a, that was a pixel editor that allowed you to do magnifying and shifting on every scan line and oh. Gary used that to create the characters in Kung Fu Master um, but for the most part I did all the sprites I did all the players and I am not a very good artist in any way shape or form but they look good but for the for Atari I can do art for that so I would say I'd rather look at an Atari and say I'm going to create the game and I know in my head what it looks like pixel for pixel and I know I can do it as opposed to seeing at a blank Unity canvas, because I need art. I can do the, the temporary art, and I can put it in and get some of the physics done and get the, get the code base done, but I'm not an artist, and so I'm going to need support for right. that. Right, so, so to show off your incredible code, people are all, why do I just see a triangle? You know what I mean? <laughs> and you're all, well, it does all this really well. stuff, right? It is, <laughs> it's coded incredibly, but you can just, right. well, on the 2600, you make a triangle, it's like, you made a triangle with a shaded side. It's That's like, right. So you now, uh, you're gonna. There's another 2600 game in your future as well, besides Gold Rush. Did I see something about that? You did. I, I when I was starting Gold Rush on the 8-bit workshop, um, I got to a certain point where I put it aside and had another brainstorm. Um, and I should not do what I sometimes do, which is let's start that one first until the first until the other one's finished. And I started to write a kernel. Uh, which developed into a fairly detailed game uh, called, uh, and and I wanted to create a game um, that would be a game that Activision would have done. Yeah. So, so I thought, you know what? The one person who always inspired me at Activision was Steve Cartwright. I love Steve Cartwright's games. My God, they look incredibly beautiful. They're phenomenal, unique, creative ideas. And they play really well. Did he do Barnstorming? He did. Barnstorming to me is just gorgeous. What a great concept. Um, I remember we were at the CES where Steve came down this Las Vegas Boulevard being pulled, sitting in a bar, in a biplane, 
That was part of the Activision. <laughs> that was part of the Activision uh, marketing thing. But um, games like that, and I thought to myself, what would be a potential Steve Cartwright game? And I was sitting in a tiki bar, considering I like po- the Polynesian uh, uh, bars and whatnot, saying, "What would be a good one?" And I thought, you know, I love those old posters of the the uh, of Hawaii where they showed the the cruise ships. You know, very romantic, very mystic. Come to the mystic, you know, the mystic isles. Come to Hawaii and those Pan Am Clipper uh, 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 posters. I said, I'm going to do something kind of like like biplanes and steam trains. I'm going to do something with a luxury liner from the from the 30s and 40s. And so I I, I started to write a kernel with a, an ocean uh, with some movable uh, ice flows, and not unlike what Steve did with the ball. Uh, by making the diver in Sequest, I started playing around and making some swimmers on top of the ocean with the ball and threw in the the sunset that we'd had at Activision yeah. and did an ocean liner with some beautiful smoke coming out that was uh, uh, that was shifted and magnified. And I said, yeah, I said, I'm going to do a game called bon, bon Voyage. And you're going and you're crossing from here to England and you have to avoid ice flows and you have to avoid these things. And it's about the time the Titanic sank, so you're rescuing as many people as you can. Oh yeah, you're finding rescue. You're going the other direction. You're finding <laughs> and you're well. You're basically on a on a quest to 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 rescue the survivors. Um, and I can see the the package has you know one of these big front of the ship like these canard ships, and you've got smoke coming out of it, and it's got a rainbow to it like Activision's. And it kind of all suddenly came to me in about five minutes sitting in that bar, and I said, "Okay, I know what it looks like." I'm going to go home and, and start it. Oh, that's and fantastic. I did. So that night I put down Gold Rush and I started writing this kernel for about three weeks and said, this looks cool. Let me go back and finish the other game. Do you know of any other programmers from back at Activision or Atari days who are making their own cartridges now? No, I am the first original Activision 2600 programmer, designer who is back making new cartridges for the system. Wow. Um, with my love of all things Polynesian and my <laughs> my homage to the Activision name. That's why I chose the name Tiki Vision. Yes. Um, <laughs> you can see I have on my screen the little Tiki uh, tiki head next to the word Tiki Vision, um, kind of like what we used to do for the Activision rainbow at the bottom of our screens. I think if you look at the footage on my website of the new game, you'll see at the bottom it says Tiki Vision like the old Activision name. Yep. Um, uh, I have released recently, and I'm about to release this week, the finished packaging, but the image on the packaging is drawn to replicate the original Activision cartridges boxes. Um, so I want to recreate Activision in the 1980s with a new line of 2,600 games that will be uh, brought over to other systems. Uh, I am recreating the Activision clubs. I have a patch already wow. designed, and I'm going to have a uh, a, a newsletter, and um, I think if you've seen for Gold Rush, you can go in my blog and download copies of the Gold Rush Gazette, oh, which cool. is an old, old-time newspaper that I've written. Uh, I see it, Gold Rush Gazette. There's three issues out there, and they give clues to the game. Um, wow. In there, you can read that and say, oh, that's interesting. That'll probably be in the game. Uh, and I have, uh, in the last year of going to cons and expos, I started releasing limited edition trading cards for the game. Oh, beautiful. Uh, And I've got six out there already. And um, since I have the ability 
one thing we didn't have back in the 80s was obviously the luxury of space. So while I'm not using any additional hardware or RAM, I certainly have a lot of banks. So um, the original game was going to be 8K and quite limited, um, the Keystone Cannonball version for Activision. This one I'm going to be filling almost 32K of wow. 4K banks. I've got over 57 different types of train cars. Um, you can go into the train cars. Um, I have different interiors for almost every train car. I've got over 67 hex enemies. So what does that come out to? That's almost uh, sick. I have about 96 enemies right now. And and those are, you know, and some of those are repeats. Obviously, you've got certain things that do different movements, different patterns. So maybe I have about 50 unique enemies. Um, and I'm pulling a lot of different train cars. So I'm hoping to have at minimum 50 train levels. Wow. And wow. I have... Most every kind of car you can imagine, uh, box cars, gondola cars, um, I have dining cars, okay, I, have, I have coach cars, uh, I have tanker cars, and I have magic cars because you're pulling in a couple of trains, you're pulling some trains from a traveling magician. <laughs> That's amazing. Oh, and wow. so you can imagine there's some pretty fun things you got to get around there. How about um, a circus I've got some, train? Some circus cars, absolutely. Nice. Those are being pulled with the traditional... Um, elephants and the traditional giraffe head sticking out of the top you've got to avoid. <laughs> That's incredible. Um, I have uh, a couple of museum cars. And then I have some other magical cards, cars, I'll just put it at that, that will be scattered throughout that, are, that I'm even pretty freaking impressed with. When I, <laughs> when I did them, I put them up and I was like, oh, this is effing cool. And I called over my, 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 uh, my significant other and she looked at it and I said, what does this look like? And she said, oh, my God, that looks like X. And I said, yeah. I said, that looks really cool, doesn't it? Um, you know, it's fun when I'm making something and I light it and it lights up and I say, God, this is cool. That, that I, I just love that moment when what's in my brain can turn into something that will be enjoyed by other players. That is awesome. Um, so it'll be neat. And I've got a full steam engine. You can see in the video there. I'm adding the steam to it. Uh, I've, got a, I've got a gold car that you you have to wander the train in the time you have finding the gold and collecting it and then taking it to the gold car dropping it in there and then jumping into the engine to slow the engine down all before time runs out and obviously when time runs out you'll be added to your score the time remaining you know a little bit of the and then you'll start with another train but the train cars whilst while they're all connected some of them are make multiple chains of cars so things like the magic cars and the mystery cars and the dining and the the coach cars you can see that they're physically connected so sometimes you can jump into a car and run five or six screens oh. in one direction to be able to find something and then run back five or six screens almost like pitfall a little bit i mean time like you're going into the the, the chasm underneath yeah. the and more than seven screens ahead or whatever it was. that's yeah. correct um, and then you have you have a, a variety of switches that you'll find on the train. And you'll find these colored switches will open colored hatches in some of the boxcars. So you may see a boxcar and has a red hatch on it. I can't get in it. So let me run down five, five cars. There's a red switch. Let me hit it. <laughs> let me run back. Hey, it's now open. I'll climb down into the car and I'll see what's in it, get what I need to. So it's very much of a maze as well. That is incredible. 
what do you do with only having 128 bytes? Like, how do you store? How do you make <laughs> gameplay like this? I know you're storing lots of data elsewhere, like on the it's Bank Switch, but how do you make a game that does all these elaborate things with with only 128 bytes at a time? Well, you know, I'm I'm really I'm really using 1,024 bits. I mean, what I'm doing is I'm doing what Dave did for Pitfall, where he created the entire screen with the, with an with an eight bit byte. And he had a bit to tell him what the trees were, and a bit to Got tell it. him if there was a, if there was a scorpion there, and if there's a hole there. And so, yeah, I'm in essence always struggling with RAM. Um, the last part of the game I will put in uh, is the sound, and I'm probably going to need to free up some RAM for that, um, two or three bytes here and there. Um, but uh, it is a challenge. ROM is wonderful. Oh boy, I want to put in another car. And it doesn't yeah. fit in this bank. Hey, but uh, yeah, it is a challenge, and I'm doing a lot of juggling with the RAM. So I got a question for you. What do we call this? This is not homebrew. This is something else, right? This is yeah, yeah, no, it? It, it is correct. I, I actually, um, one of the guys from the video game museum. I was sitting with them at uh, last year's Portland Retro Gaming Expo, and um, somebody who who wasn't affiliated with them kind of came over and said, you know, so when is your homebrew going to be done? And the guys kind of looked at him and said, well, you know, um, and I, I was very honored that they said this. Um, I think it was Joe or, or John looked at him and said, well, now, if Dan Kitchen's doing a game, it's not a homebrew. It's not a homebrew. That, that's it's, it's, you know, he's publishing a brand new series of games. He's a publisher. Um, so the game itself, I should be done with uh, coming up in May. Um, all the screens are done. A lot of the gameplay is done. All the enemies are done, added to the game. What I'm now doing is I'm now completely finishing the brains of all the enemies. Uh, and then I have to lay out the levels. You know, I have 56 train cars and all these great enemies. Now I get to sit down and figure out, you know, what Dave did with the maze. You know, what is what is train one look and what does train 50 look like? Um, and how much time do I have to add and whatnot? Uh, and then I put in the audio. So I'm, I was hoping to get the game done by May and do a, and do a, uh, a in April middle of april starting a kickstarter but as i told your brother before you came on you know with the state of the world i'm not sure if that's going to happen because i know of other kickstarters that are being delayed uh i think primarily because you know people will have some some very difficult financial times coming ahead and they may not have the free money that they that they thought they would have so i'm going to gear it play it by ear and see how the economy is doing and certainly We'll get the game out this year, but I, I'm just not sure when the Kickstarter will start at this time. Well, I guess cool. you could do an initial run Kickstarter for like people who can afford it and will buy it right away. Like you do a low amount, low right. enough amount, right. so that it won't get not funded. Like I don't know, like a hundred cartridges, right? You're going to fund that no matter what, right? And, then, and, and I, I just need the money for the manufacturing, right? Because you need right. to make cartridges, right, or whatever you need, and um. Because we'd buy two of those. <laughs> <laughs> I appreciate that. And I, you could even get a version signed. Um, and I'm also, you know, I was hoping to do the tiers of, of uh, signed cartridges and cartridges with a complete set of uh, tradable cards. Oh, yeah. And another set with uh, a poster and another set with the gazettes. I'm, I'm actually got two or three more that I'm writing. And I wanted to print those up on old, old parchment. And have those be available as well that you could get with with a cartridge. Wow! Um, and then a potential collector's version where you buy a cartridge, you get another one for much cheaper. 
but it's sealed and you don't ever have to open yeah, it. Yeah, I do that so, one too. So yeah. you, can get, you can get one you get, to play with and one that's gonna, you're going to leave sealed. Exactly. And you're you not paying the, the same price for it. It's a cheaper game. So um, you're not paying for two games. Did I hear something about a patch? Patches? Yes, there is, there is a patch. Uh, players will be trying to join the, uh, the Golden Spike Club. Um, and I actually was, I think this week I'm going to release what the finished box look like, looks like and what the finished patch looks like. So you can find that on my blog, I think probably on Thursday. So uh, other platforms after that, do you have a plan to uh, to make a Commodore 64 version? Like I saw someone made a Commodore 64 version. I version saw of that. Yeah, they actually uh, approached me and wanted to do the same for, for Gold Rush. And I, I think I may have them do that. Um, as much as I'd like to get back to doing Commodore 64 programming, uh, I would rather continue with a new 2600 game and maybe port this to more of the the current platforms. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. It's a good idea. What about um, what about using Game Maker? There you go. <laughs> I'm sure I could do it in Game Maker. Uh, I've actually had discussions to bring it to to Tommy's new system, which he just released a oh, yeah. a gameplay commercial today. The games look phenomenal. The television. The, oh my god! Check out the gameplay commercial today that was just released. The work in progress. It looks they look wonderful. And yeah. I think he's he's. Uh, I think I, I'd like to bring the game over to there, put it on mobile. Um, love to do an eight bit version as well. Um, and uh, you know, I I really appreciate what you guys have done with your writing, and with your uh, the things throughout the year that uh, your interest as brothers have have been very inspirational to to everyone, uh, just as we have. And I think it's cool when when you know. I know so many guys who have brothers who don't get along and and sibling rivalry and things like that. And it's so cool when there's brothers who share a common goal and a common vision and do it like you guys have done. (laughs) And uh, I I just thought that was really cool. And I thank you for all the work you've done throughout the years on promoting and talking about what we've done and for your coding and the things you've uh, you've you've helped bring to bring to reality oh, cool. well, you're, the, you're the superstar here man we're just bring we're just delivering the message i i just make games and i enjoy doing it very cool and i appreciate people are still playing games i did 40 years ago i never would have thought of that i know right but but i think it was, i think it's just that it's so either it was so much part of our i suppose part of like everything changed so much that that to be able to play stick a cartridge in the 1700 or the 2600 and play one of your games is just so simple compared to anything else, right? You know, it's, it's part of our youth. It, yeah. it brings us back to a time where we're young again. It makes us feel good. It makes us think of better times, though they may not have been better. Yeah, it, exactly. Uh, you, your brain always thinks of that. It may never remember some of the horrible things that we experienced during our lifetime, but we, <laughs> it brings us back to young when we were young. And, uh, you know, same reason I think Guys like me and other guys, you know, go get a baseball mitt and go out and shag flies. Or, exactly. Or, you know, it's the same thing. So, so this is this helping bring you back a little bit to your, you and your brother, your, your home, and you do it at your house, but you're still yes. kind of thinking about you and your brothers in your in the basement making the games when you're doing this. It kind of gives you that sort of feeling. It does. It you know it brings oh. back a, a lot of the wonderful memories of Activision, um, and to this day, I can't sit. With a joystick in my hand and a new game that I'm working on and not think or hear in the back of my head that endless godforsaken sound of Mario running across the screen <laughs> that, that Gary was programming right next to me while I was sitting there trying to code Crystal Caverns. You know, I'm sitting there trying to do multi-paragraph recognition uh, 
text adventure, and all of a sudden I just keep hearing endless over and over. Will you turn that damn thing down? No, it's it's. I still think he did a great job. <laughs> he did an incre- I don't think anybody could have done that job. No. He did an incredible job. The epitome of brothers working side by side, right there. Yeah. And I and I and I joke hearing I I heard those sounds for so many months, but uh, but you know it brings back wonderful memories, and yeah, so does so does coding the Atari Twenty Six Hundred. Uh, for years, when I wasn't, for twenty or thirty years, I would sometimes drift back when I would see something in the world, and and I would remember thinking to myself, "Holy crap, they have more than six of them there." How are they doing that? <laughs> oh, that's right. It's it's reality. Um, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so what did you think of our interview with Dan Kitchen, Joe? What I thought about the interview, Steve, um, Dan is awesome. I know I say that it sounds like just flipping, but it's not. He's awesome. You know, the fact that he is building Atari 2600 games in the style of Activision now, you know, using all assembly language, but then using all the banks he possibly can. I mean, imagine Activision games in the 80s that could bank switch 32K. 32K of ROM just means you can store a lot more different graphics, graphics. so you can have much deeper gameplay further on than just a single few screens. And it switches out those graphics on the fly. Um, there still is only 128 bytes of memory that you're using as you're building it, but those bytes are then pulling in from whatever 4K bank they need to show graphics and or code and to use code. Anyway, that's what it means. So, is it, is it code as well or just graphics? I, I assume that there is code you can pull over. Data is what I mean. Would it be data. like data? data. That, I'm thinking of data levels and stuff like that. Right, that's what I'm thinking. I'm not thinking of like the kernel code that's used to play the game. I'm thinking of more data, right, to describe the rooms, and those are still done as byte strings, like you were saying, um, or bit. Right. I'm sorry, bit, a bunch bits. of bunch of bits. You're bit twiddling a bunch of bytes to describe the trains and stuff. Yeah, it's, it was pretty cool. I'm getting off the ground this season and having a really good interview with someone who's been pro- actually deep programming the 2600 was great. Well, I really like the fact that he's found some of those online tools, uh, like 8-Bit Workshop, started with it, got excited about it, and then it made him go back to use his own code just with Stella, which is fantastic because he can do bank switching with it a little bit easier. Sure. I just, I wonder if, I mean, I know, I know that he's going to kickstart it and, you know, there's, you know, the, the amount of people who are into this are probably a handful, right? There may be a thousand people ultimately that would buy his cartridge, Atari 2600 game. Yeah. He's but, going to have lots of stuff and different versions and a boxed version or a not boxed version. You can get two so you can open one and play one and keep one. He's doing a lot of interesting things though, I think. No, so, it's it's awesome. I just I just wonder if this type of thing will will grow the audience for for not homebrew. What do we call it? Like that's the other thing. Like what do we call what he's doing? Because it's not homebrew. It's not homebrew. It's, it is. It's his own company. So it's every all the other guys have companies too. In fact, the, I would say that the guys who made Ricky and Vicky, it wasn't homebrew either. Because, no, I don't call it the homebrew because either. it's really a commercial game, and so are some of the. I would say I'm just going to put it out this way that any even Atari Age are commercial games if everybody involved is using their own IP. If the guy who got the Wizard of War IP on Atari Age, if he secured the license, then it ain't homebrew; it's something else. Correct. I consider um, something like Rebooteroids for the Jaguar completely 
someone's own IP, their own game. They made it, and they're just using Atari Age as a way to sell it. That to me is maybe it was made at home. So is every other game that's made in the indie game. So I'm thinking those are really commercial. And Dan, Dan Kitchens is a commercial piece of software. Yeah, there's a fine line between homebrew and I think the guys who actually published a game on the VCS back in the 80s for real, you know, published it through a company and are making new stuff. I think that's just a, a different thing. I don't know what to call it, but what I think it is is a is sort of an inflection point in in this idea that people would make games for these old systems. And I know there's for other systems people have done it as well. I think the 2600 though stands out as the one where there's been a, this whole sort of underground movement for like 20 years or so to do it. And to finally have a guy like Dan who's been working in the game industry continuously since the 2600 go back and build stuff is pretty amazing. Right. It's great to have him successfully creating his advert games with other technologies such as HTML5 and using um, uh, other tools and then go back and make an Atari um, 2600 game using pure assembly, use under to under same company, Tiki Vision. And it makes it really a, a real commercial venture that's going along with other um, commercial ventures that he's doing. Here's what I want to talk about though a little bit. Gary Kitchen's Game Maker. I know. So, you know, we, in the off season, we talked a lot about game makers and I think we planned an episode on our first game maker, which was Pinball Construction Set, Bill Budge's Pinball Construction Set. But Gary Kitchen's Game Maker didn't come out for the Atari, any Atari system, which is unfortunate because it sounds like it was a pretty amazing piece of software. It does. It sounds like it took full advantage of everything you could do on the Commodore 64. On the Commodore 64, there are eight 32 by 32 three-color sprites makes mm -hmm. it much easier to manipulate those without a lot of uh, tricks so you could make a game maker with the pure Commodore 64's chip set a little bit easier but Dan made it on the Apple II that That's would be cool. a pure pixel pusher like you would have done with on the Atari 800 but then you could have added sprites in an Atari 800 add player missile graphics which would be really cool. Yeah. So I think I, I would love to see it. I haven't tried either one. I don't know what games are made from it, but it sounds great. And I'd love to check out the Apple, the Apple and the Commodore 64 versions, at least see the games that were made with it. So I think that our first venture this season in interviewing a current game maker went really well. I think we should try to do some more. What, what do you think? I do too. In fact, up next, we have a current hardware maker that we are interviewing, that we've done an interview with, who also has something to kickstart, a second hardware device. That's pretty cool. And, um, but after that, I'd like to find other, other people that are currently making games and talk to them and okay. see what they're doing. You know, there's a great. lot of them out there. I really thank Dan for, for doing the interview. And uh, we'll catch up with him again when his game is ready to come out. And I'm sure we'll have more to talk to him. He had even more I wanted to talk to him about. I just, we just ran out of time. Yeah, we can do a second interview with Dan talking about the uh, the stuff that when his game's coming out and then the Kickstarter, whatever his new game is. Because by that time, he may be thinking about, okay, I've put everything into this one. Time for a new game since it's the same game he's been working on the 2600 since he stopped on the 2600 yeah, and totally. started again. Cool. All right. Well, that was great, man. I'm really enjoying the season so far. 
Yeah, me We've too. had none of my dumb stories yet, though, so. We have a um, the second part of next Atari's biggest mistake. That's right. Oh, before we go, bunkers right now, let's do a watching, playing, reading. What are you watching? I have I've gone back and started watching The Wire seasons one through five over again. I know that's supposed to be a really good show. I have to tell you that you should be watching Tiger King. Oh, on I listened to the podcast about that. Oh, okay, well, then you seen, know it is the craziest thing I've, I've seen ever seen. Tiger King, the dude is a crazy. Okay, it's not just the dude, it's all of them. You well, to, there's three different people that are crazy in that one. Yes, yes I know. Three individual sets of people that are crazy in that one. The podcast is only about the one guy and, um, and his fight with the woman in, in Florida. Not the right. so the one guy, which is the guy in Texas, I think. Anyway, um, no, he's but, not tasting like Oklahoma or something. Oklahoma, but. you're correct. What about playing, playing? I have been playing 7800 games, I've been playing Asteroids Ooh. because I, I got a 70 a new 7800 sent to me. It came with an NES controller that's been reformatted to use the second button as a 7800, it's got RCA upgraded, and so I've been playing a lot of Asteroids and Food Fight, played a little Xevious, a lot of Miss Pac Man a little Galaga, and a lot of Dig Dug and Centipede for some reason on my 700, which which those are some of my favorite games of all time. Have and you tried uh, Ricky and Vicky? I don't have Ricky and Vicky. You don't? I have a copy here. I you don't have a Ricky and Vicky, no. I don't have one. Okay, I'll let you borrow it. That'd be great. What about you playing? You should buy your own, but I'll let you borrow mine. I will mine. buy my own. I will buy my own, but let me borrow it first. I, I would like to get one of those, too. I'd love to have a 700 that actually hooked up to a TV. Do you, no, you don't have any sort of cuddle cart or anything for that, I do right? I not. There's... I cannot find one. I'm looking for one, but they're so expensive out there to get the secondhand ones that are like, it's like $500 or something to find. I want them. one because I want to, I do want to start building some games and I want to play them on, on a real 700. Like that's really my goal right now. I have every single cartridge I could find on the, um, my Sony PlayStation that I, um, the Sony PlayStation mini that I modded to play all the games. So I have all the 700 games on all the, everything that I could find. That How was they play, homebrew. they play great. They play. They play fantastic. They look crystal clear too. They play really good. They play really. I started setting mine up like that, and then I, I think I forgot. Like I ran out of time or something. something. Yeah, I'm using Auto Bleam. It's really nice. I, th- I, I, I should, think I gave yeah, you the thing to, to just plug it in. It should work. Yeah, I don't know where it is. I, I, I lost track of everything in a couple weeks ago. Yeah, I'm currently playing Skyrim. I've been playing Skyrim since January on the ps4 i never played it originally came out i mean i played it a little bit but then i didn't explain skyrim a little to me skyrim is a first person role-playing game single Um, player it's single player yeah they have a multiplayer version but i I don't like what's the setting Um, it's it's medieval in the world of elder scrolls Um, this is elder scrolls 5 and it's basically a first person rpg where you can be almost anything so there's a mage guild and there's a five there's all these different factions and uh, like you could become the leader of every faction at the same same time because they forget but they send you on all these quests it's the world is almost fully realized especially in this version on the ps4 that has a lot of updates and fixes to the one that was on the xbox it's really fun i'm getting close not to the end it doesn't really end but close to where i don't have that much left to do but that's what i've been playing and i got my old samsung galaxy tablet out I, I installed retro arch and i wanted to see if i could play games on that as well so i may start that too but i, I, I don't know have... you could do that that's fantastic also i forgot that i'm on the ps mini medal of honor the first medal of honor 
Oh, really cool. Oh, and with save states, which is really, really cool. I, I don't know why I get I, I I like. I think we're doing it one day, and you just forgot, and I put it away. So, well, what about reading, Steve? What are you reading? I'm reading a book by Paul Hirsch, who is was the editor on Star Wars and The Press Strikes Back, and Ferris Bueller's Day Off, and he was he he edited like George Lucas stuff and John Hughes movies and a bunch of other things, and it's fascinating because. He won, I think, a couple Academy Awards, or at least was nominated. It's fascinating to see just how the people who uh, do the actual work on these movies. I mean, he's struggling for money in times after he's won an Academy Award. Anyway, right, it's just right. It also, it also gives you all this information about how an editor actually puts the real film yeah, it's together. Pretty amazing. It's pretty good. Hold it's on a one really second. Um, I have a book that coincides with that that I'm reading. Just one second. Let me get. Let me see. The chapter about Star Wars could be a movie unto itself. Oh, that's awesome. That'd be great. Maybe it'd be great if someone like Netflix or someone would come in and start making something about these things like that. I would. I, I just know. one second. Let me get this book. All right. So I have a book that kind of coincides with that, especially with the John Hughes portion. I picked up So That Happened, a memoir by John Cryer. And oh, my God, that sounds great. goes through all of his early stuff. It's pretty cool. And obviously, the John Hughes portion has him talking. Uh, he So far, he hasn't made any John Hughes movies yet in what I've read so far. But um, he certainly has had some interesting times so far. It's pretty hilarious. Um, that sounds great. So we're trying to make get one of these out a week for the foreseeable future. So let's get this moving and we will we will have another episode next week. The next one hopefully will be the Atari's Biggest Mistake Part 2 where we actually say what we think Atari's Biggest Mistake is. And I think we even confirmed on Twitter that it is Atari's Biggest Mistake. So I think we're... we're yeah, we're right. part of our interview with somebody too that is goes in there also. It's going to be fun. It's going to be a fun episode. Cool. All right. All right. Well, until next time, Into the Vertical yep. Blank. Into the Vertical Blank. Thanks for listening to Season 3, Episode 3 of Into the Vertical Blank, Generation Atari, Dan Kitchen, and the first Pro Brew Game Makers. Coming up in the next episode, we'll have Part 2 of Atari's Biggest Mistake. Until next time, Into the Vertical Blank.
Next frame calculated. Prepare to write new data. V blank ending. An 8-Bit Rocket Studios production.